0: Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about 1 Kings chapters 17 to 19. Some great stories in these few chapters. Of course, I'm going to set a little bit of a stage before we get into this because we're skipping a little bit of the history. The last thing we talked about was the fall of Solomon because, again, pride, his desire for wealth, and Fame and so on, and it all goes to his head, and he stops doing things the Lord's way and starts doing things his way. Always a terrible mistake. But after Solomon, we've kind of skipped a little bit now into First Kings, chapter seventeen, to talk about Elijah. But let's kind of fill in a little bit of that gap there. Solomon had one son that we know of, at least only one that's mentioned, Rehoboam. R H, kind of a strange name, Rehoboam, and. He was going to be the king next because of primogenitor, the oldest one, inherits the throne. Now, he had some older advisors who came to him and said, you know, the people have borne the burden of high taxes and high demands in order to build the temple to the Lord and then the palace that, remember, was twice the size of the temple because that's kind of how Solomon saw himself. But anyway, do yourself a favor and ease the burdens lower the taxes, don't make such big demands on them for building all this fancy, wonderful stuff. Just take it easy for a while and the people will be loyal to you. And they will be grateful to you because things will give them some relief. But he didn't like that advice. And he went to some younger advisors, more of his era or generation, I suppose. And they were like, no, raise the taxes. You know, these people can support you in your lavish lifestyle or whatever. So Rehoboam did that. And he says this really kind of nasty thing. He says, you know, my My father afflicted them with whips, but I will afflict them with scorpions. So, like, they haven't seen anything yet, you know? And he imposed these same really big demands on the people, and they didn't like it. Now, Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's servants—so prior to Rehoboam's taking the throne, when Solomon was still a king, Jeroboam had been a servant or a leader. He became a supervisor of building a fortress for Solomon— and during this time, the Lord told Solomon that he was going to remove the kingdom from Solomon's house because of Solomon's wickedness, because Solomon had vaunted himself and elevated himself above God and had taken all these wives that were not given to him and concubines that had pagan worship and had built temples for them and had, you know, promoted that kind of really licentious, evil, horrible pagan worship. So Solomon had lost the favor of God and through that disobedience. So God had told him, I'm going to remove the kingdom from your house and we'll give it to one of your servants. And that had actually been revealed to be Jeroboam. Now, because of that, and Solomon wasn't happy about that, you know, Jeroboam had to leave Israel because Solomon most likely would have tried to to have him killed. But now that Rehoboam is the king, Jeroboam actually was one of those who came to him and said, ease up on the people. But he wouldn't do it. So Jeroboam, A leader in his own right, leader of one of the northern tribes, takes the 10 tribes into a different government. Obviously, they didn't move physically. They were still right there in that same geographic region. But now we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is composed of basically 10 tribes and the southern kingdom of basically two tribes. Judah is the main tribe. Judah is a large tribe. And the kings are all direct descendants In the line of Judah, remember, David, the king was from Judah, his son Solomon, Rehoboam, and that's what happens. They continue in the line of Judah, the kings of the southern kingdom, until the Babylonian conquest to come. But these are the tribes of Judah, and then there's a part of Benjamin that is left also in the southern kingdom. Now, Benjamin's not a very big tribe. They had been largely destroyed because of the sins that they were committing. And so they have become a smaller tribe, but they are joined there with Judah. Obviously, there has been some mingling of the tribes. So in the Jewish race today, if you, if we were to do DNA tests on all the, the Jews that we know of in the earth today— we would find some Levi, because the Levites were spread amongst the, you know, all the tribes. And occasionally we would find another tribal member that because there was intermarriage and mixture between the tribes. So it it isn't pure Judah and Benjamin, but it's mostly Judah and, and some Benjamin with some Levites. And the Northern Kingdom is mostly the other ten tribes. So this is the division of the kingdom. From now on, we're gonna have a situation where there are some prophets that come to the northern kingdom to prophesy destruction if they don't repent, and some that come to the southern kingdom. So we're talking about like 922 BC here, so a little less than a thousand years before the birth of Christ, that this kingdom makes a permanent separation. To the northern kingdom, this is not a comprehensive list, but we have very familiar names of some of the prophets of the northern kingdom would include Hosea, Amos, Micah, Elijah, and Elisha. Those aren't all of the prophets sent to the Northern Kingdom, but those are are some of the names we're pretty familiar with. Those were Northern Kingdom prophets. Southern Kingdom prophets include, again, not limited to, but include Jonah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. So there there are different, different prophets that go to the different kingdoms. Some of them speak to both kingdoms, but there's a big division there. And of course, one of the best known prophets that went to the southern kingdom was Isaiah. So Isaiah, who prophesied during the reign of like four different kings. And many of these prophets spanned more than one king. Eventually, just to kind of, you know, jump ahead, the northern kingdom rejects the words of the prophets. From the time of the separation of the kingdoms to the Assyrian conquest in 721 BC, they have 19 kings. One of them is kind of mixed, you know, somewhat righteous sometimes, but not all the time. And none are truly righteous. So the northern kingdom deteriorates pretty quickly. In the southern kingdom, there are 20 kings that rule the government of the southern kingdom up to 586 BC, which is the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. Six of them were considered more righteous. So there are some that try to serve the Lord, try to turn the people away from their sin and their pagan worship. But six of 20, again, certainly not even half, and the southern kingdom eventually deteriorates into unrighteousness as well and captivity. All the prophecies that we've talked about up to this point and many more to come are fulfilled in the captivity of the northern kingdom by Assyria, where they are taken north and lost, and the southern kingdom, which is then taken into captivity in Babylon and does return to Jerusalem, but is never again a self-governing people in that area, not until after World War II with the establishment of the State of Israel. So, a long time of captivity is to come because of, of their unwillingness to repent or follow the prophets. You know, I've just been so struck by the stiff neckedness of these people. You know, as a counselor, most people who come to see me are, are pretty motivated. So, it's wonderful to work with people who want to grow. And when I say motivated, I mean, they're motivated to make things better in their lives, to learn new things, to be healthy and, and well and high functioning in, a, in an emotional, spiritual, relational sense. They want to be good marriage partners. They want to be good parents, good sons and daughters, good, good individuals, good children of God. Occasionally, somebody is sort of dragged into therapy, and they really don't want to be there. They don't last very long, and I'm not really willing to work with somebody who's just going to check a box and say, oh, I'm going to therapy, but won't apply any principles in a way that can help make things better. But that really has not been the majority of my experience, because as I said, the people who come, you know, even if they're not the ones causing the problem, which is often the case, but you know they're being hurt by a dysfunctional situation somewhere, or have been hurt by something and they just want to heal, but they're pretty motivated. So I look at these children of Israel and I'm like, these, these guys just are so not motivated to change. To tell the truth, I hear about people who don't seem motivated to change. I hear about parents or partners or children who, no matter how many times lovingly the call is extended to them to you know repent or change their ways or improve or stop being destructive of themselves or others, and they just won't do it. They just won't do it. It makes me so sad because I think, you know, people do not have to be as miserable as they are. I remember a statement by Mary G. Romney who said, you know, how many tellings does it take? How many tellings does it take? How many times does somebody have to be called or called to repentance or begged to change? And and they just choose not to hear. And they, they won't look in the mirror and say, you know what, I need to do better. And then my relationship could improve or my life could improve or... The presence of the light and truth and the spirit in my life would increase. You know, they might go to church every Sunday. They might pay their tithing. They might do all kinds of other observances, but they really don't want to change. I hope that is never going to include us. I hope that, that our hearts are soft, not hard. I mean, as we read through this Children of Israel history, I hope that we see it as the cautionary tale that it is. They had such privilege. They had such potential. God would have made of them a mighty nation. A holy nation of priests, of priestesses where their children could have grown up in righteousness, in light and truth. Not that there wouldn't have been temptation. There always is in this life. There are challenges, but God would have been there in their lives because they would have invited him in and he would have been there forward and their rearward and to their right and their left sides, bearing them up with his angels supporting them and blessing them with an outpouring of, of goodness and, and opportunity to become a righteous and powerful people in the Lord. And they just wouldn't do it. Are, are we going to ever make that mistake? Let us not make that mistake. Let us look in the mirror with humility and say, what lack I yet? Or Lord, is it I? You know, there's trouble in my marriage. Is it I? There's trouble with my children. Is it I? You know, there's trouble in my relationship with my parents. There's trouble in my relationships with neighbors or at work or with friends. You know, I've lost too many friends or I've been in too many, you know, roller coaster relationships. You know, is it I? And while, of course, there could, there could be other things at play, and I'm not saying it's all one person's fault, one person might be responsible for the terrestrial problems in the relationship. I mean, often I'll talk with people and and they may not be perfect. And they say that quickly, they say, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but you know, this is what I'm dealing with. And the other person is the one bringing in the telestial problems. You know, the first person is still maybe, you know, terrestrial working on celestial, but the other one is bringing in the telestial problems. And if that's the case, then they still can look in the mirror and say like, what am I supposed to learn? And how am I supposed to grow and become during this this difficult time. And they are often willing to do that, to become even more refined, to become even more holy, even if they're not the ones causing the trouble. But the ones who are causing the trouble, honestly, it's much less likely that I see those. Occasionally, somebody becomes really fearful of divorce or whatever, and that person might, you know, finally soften their heart and say, I don't want to lose my marriage, or I don't want to lose my children. And they might come in and be more motivated, but after decades of of having a hard heart, it's not easy to turn that around. It's always possible. Okay, I know that was a, a real detour, but it's just something that's been on my mind here as I look at these children of Israel and this, this really tragic story of of a, the loss of potential, and it it really makes me aware that you know pride sinks potential. That was the issue. They were proud. They were stiff-necked. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they could have their cake and eat it too. You know, God was convenient for them if they ever wanted to call on him and maybe repent for a moment, but then they would turn away from him immediately to satisfy their own desires, their their laziness, their natural man. You know, the call of the pagan was loud in their ears and they listened. So pretty tragic stories here. But there are some great messages that come as we finish the Old Testament for the remainder of the year. And there are some incredible messianic prophecies that are are going to be studied as we go on. So I hope that you'll still find much to enjoy in this study of the Old Testament. But let's not miss the cautionary tale. So at this time of Elijah the prophet, Ahab and Jezebel are governing, and they are wicked. In fact, Jezebel actually rounds up a lot of the the priests of the Lord and has them killed. Some are saved by a faithful servant in the court who hides some of the prophets and brings them food. But many have been killed killed. And for this reason, there is a famine in the land. The Lord has closed up the heavens so that the harvests are disappearing and and people are hungry. And then we have this wonderful story about how God is mindful of this widow, who is a good woman with one son, and she is almost out of food. So she goes to gather up some sticks to make a fire and to use the last of her meal and the last of her oil to make a little cake for them to eat and then to lie down and die because she doesn't have any recourse beyond that. There's no other place she can go for help. She's out of options. So she's resigned to that. And she encounters Elijah the prophet, obviously not by chance. Elijah speaks to her and says, you know, can you give me water? And she does. And then he says, can you can you give me a morsel of bread and and bring that to me? This is in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, if, if you've read or followed along with this. And in verse 12, she tells him, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah, the next verse 13 says, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee. And for thy son. So this is this is a test. I, you know, I don't know how to measure this test. The Lord does. Maybe it was Abrahamic. It was her last food, her last food for herself and her son. And the prophet says, Bring it to me first. And then he gives a promise, which is beautiful that she believes the promise. And of course, there are many promises that are made that people don't believe, but she believes it, which is wonderful. In verse 14, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste. Neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So he gives her the promise before she goes and acts. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah in verse 15. And so she brings him this little little cake. And then she sees that, in fact, there will always be meal in her barrel and oil in her crews that do not fail during the famine. Then there is another little episode where the son becomes sick and dies, and Elijah takes the son up into his chamber where he's staying with her on the upstairs part of the house and prays to the Lord that he not reward the widow this way that that he bring life back into the son. and that's what happens. And she makes a nice statement of testimony that, I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So another witness to her that the Lord is mindful of her and with her as she's helping his prophet Elijah during this time. So we don't know exactly how long he stayed with her, but it's some time apparently as she continues to have meal in her barrel and oil in her cruise. Now finally, Elijah is told of the Lord that it's time to go and confront Ahab. And he does. In fact, he calls Obadiah, this is chapter 18, who's the governor of Ahab's house. And Obadiah feared the Lord greatly to the point where when Jezebel tried to kill the prophets, that Obadiah took a hundred of them and hid them by 50 in, in a cave and fed them. And now he asks Obadiah to set up a meeting with, with Ahab. And Obadiah at first hesitates, but you know he follows the instruction of Elijah and does that. And then when Elijah is in front of Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab has the temerity to say in chapter 18, verse 17, Ahab says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? <laughs> like, is, Are you the one who's causing all this trouble? And Elijah answers in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and hast followed Balaam. So, you know, I'm not the one causing the trouble. You're the one because you have turned away from God and and followed this pagan worship that's so evil. So then he issues this challenge to bring all the 450 priests of Baal and the prophets of the groves that are 400 that Jezebel is supporting and then issues this, this wonderful challenge to the people of Israel. In still chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah says, how long halt ye between two opinions? Like, basically, make up your mind. How long are you going to go back and forth? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. <laughs> they didn't have much to say, did they? Because, yeah, occasionally they would worship God for a moment's convenience if they needed help or whatever. But they were always going back to the pagan gods. And Elijah's is saying, make up your mind. You know, which one is God? And then worship him. And so Elijah says, only I, this is verse 22, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let's do a contest. And I love this story. I remember my father telling this story in his beautiful voice, slightly accented voice, perfect articulation. He was a great storyteller. And he would tell us about this as we were traveling in the car on long trips and, you know, let's get two bullocks and make the altar. And he has the Wicked priests of Baal build this altar, and they put the bullock on there, and they pray to ask Baal to send fire to consume the sacrifice and prove that he is God. And, of course, no fire comes. And this goes on and on for hours. and, And, you know, Elijah's been in hiding for quite a long time and has already had really some difficult challenges as prophet of the Lord. But he's having a good time this day. And in verse twenty-seven, Elijah mocked them and said, "Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or is he in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened." <laughs> in other words, he's really giving them a hard time. You know, like, hey, you might have to cry louder. He might be asleep. You might be. You might be on a trip. Maybe he's talking to somebody. You know, get louder. Get louder. And they do, and they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till blood is gushing out of them. And midday has passed, and whatever, and and finally, you know there's no answer. And Elijah says, my turn. So he, he dresses the bullock. He takes these 12 stones representing the, the tribes of Israel. And he puts the, the dressed bullock there for the sacrifice, but that's not, he's not ready yet to pray to the Lord and i read in one of the commentaries that there actually would be some some tricks that some of these pagan priests would do where they would have a small fire already lit underneath something and then they would act like the fire ignited because of of the pagan god when in fact they had you know kind of already prepared this trick to impress people and this was kind of known i guess so that is supposed to have motivated some of what comes next where elijah instead of just praying to the lord to send fire to consume the sacrifices now bring me four barrels of water and pour the water all over the sacrifice, soak everything. And then they do that. And he says, do it again. And they bring four more barrels of water and soak everything. And he said, do it again. So now we've had 12 barrels of water that have soaked up in the sacrifice. It's running around like a little moat around the altar. Everything is wet. And Elijah prays to the Lord, Verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. (laughs) Does it get any better than that? I mean, it's an amazing story. The Lord's fire came and consumes everything. Even the stones are consumed by the fire of the Lord, and it licks up the water in the trench. And all the people, verse 39, saw it and fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah says, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they take them and take them down to this brook, and they kill them, all of them, 450 priests. We don't know exactly what happens to the 400 who are the priests of the groves, but anyway, these 450 main priests of Baal are all executed after this moment. And then Elijah prophesizes that rain will come. Now, I mean, as usual, signs do not fully convert. They can get people's attention it can strengthen faith if faith is, is there. And miracles follow belief, so, so faith can precede the miracle. Elijah's faith was powerful. And we learn later because Elijah is pretty discouraged after the people don't really repent, and the Lord tells him, no, there are still 7,000 who believe in Israel. You're not completely alone. So don't give up yet. And, and think about this. These are, these are large nations, but the Lord's saying, well, there are 7,000 and I'm not ready to, to wipe out or to fulfill the, the destruction prophecies with his people because we still have some believers. So Elijah is comforted and calls Elisha to be mentored by Elijah and to become the, the subsequent prophet. And Elijah and Elisha minister to those believers in spite of the fact that most of Israel turns again to the pagan gods. Some other amazing things in Elijah's life. He is the third person that we know of in Scripture. The second, chronologically speaking, who fasts for 40 days and is sustained by the Spirit. Moses did that, and Moses actually does it twice with just a break of a few days. So that's really you know, unmatched in other records. But then Elijah also does a 40-day fast, and Christ the savior does a 40 day fast and is ministered to and sustained during that time there's a time earlier where elijah in hiding is sustained by ravens and these birds come and bring him food to keep him going he confronts the wicked king and queen a few times at the risk of his life of course he restores the widow's son to life he ends the drought after the confrontation with the prophets of baal he learns and shares this beautiful message with us about where the Lord is. Remember, Elijah goes up on this mountain and is seeking the word of the Lord and finds that the Lord is not in the earthquake or in the whirlwind, but it's in the still small voice. And that's a beautiful story that, that we talk about regularly because it is a still small voice. God doesn't come in with a brass band. That's Satan. We have to stretch our ears and our hearing to hear the Lord sometimes, but we can. And if we are tuned to that, it becomes, it becomes a very discernible voice with which we become very familiar and can, can be very directed by that voice as we tune our hearts and our minds to that still small voice. So beautiful stories that come from Elijah's ministry. He mentors Elisha, as I mentioned, who becomes a great prophet as well, following Elijah's departure. And then just before he is taken up into heaven, he divides the River Jordan. So in a similar fashion to Joshua, he commands the, the waters to part, and, and they're able to walk over the other side. Elisha wants to be with him until the end, and, and Elijah does not die He is taken up in a fiery chariot. And there are many depictions of this. You can look online and see pictures of Elisha going off in a fiery chariot depicted by artists throughout the ages. Now, why? Why does he not die and get buried? Well, for the same reason Moses does not die and get buried. It's because he has keys. Elijah has the sealing keys that can seal the generations into the family of Adam and Eve. So those keys need to be transferred by the laying on of hands, And first, they are transferred to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration during Christ's ministry. Moses comes, Elijah comes, Elias comes, and they need hands to do that. So if they were dead and buried, their bodies would deteriorate, and the resurrection did not begin until after Christ's death and resurrection, because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So they would not have had bodies in order to use their hands to transfer the keys. So instead of death, these certain servants who have keys to transfer in the future are transfigured, taken up without tasting of death, so that they still have a translated body. And having gone through that, their bodies are available to them. And then after Christ's resurrection, I imagine in a twinkling of an eye, they completed the resurrection process because now the morning of the first resurrection had begun. So they could have participated in that prior to going to then the Kirtland Temple and transferring those keys to Joseph Smith, but God works in in his according to his laws, and things are done in in the correct order in the correct way. so nice details here always that God is consistent about the rules. so what are the messages of this i I just want to mention two. Did you have a chance to watch the video that was in the Come Follow Me curriculum in the Gospel Library? It was a sweet little video that shows this story of Elijah with the widow and the widow's son. It doesn't show him getting sick and being brought to life, I don't believe, but it does tell the story of Elijah coming to the widow, asking for water, asking for that little cake, and shows her response to him, worrying that this is the last of what she has, And then how Elijah makes the promise of the Lord that she will be sustained, she and her son will be sustained with meal and oil throughout the famine if she does this and takes care of the servant of the Lord. It's a sweet little video. I mean, this is going to sound strange, perhaps, but one of the things that was most tender to me is a scene in the video where Elijah is sitting in the widow's home. This is after she has seen the miracle that she's going to have oil and meal. And they're just in her home talking as, you know, he hid there from Ahab and Jezebel for quite some time, apparently during the famine. But what touched me was that the little boy is leaning up against the prophet Elijah. He's sitting right next to him, but he's kind of leaning against him. He's, his shoulder, his arm were touching the prophet as, he's, as he sits very close to him. And that just pulled at my heartstrings because kids kids need adults, Kids need parents, and they need a mother and a father. Now, let me amend that a little bit. Kids need good mothers and good fathers. They don't have to be perfect. Thank heavens, or none of us would qualify, but they need to be good, loving parents who are trying to do what's right, trying to be obedient, trying to teach our children. And the Lord will magnify those efforts if we are desirous of of doing good to and doing well by our children. You know, our court system is so messed up these days. And too often I feel like children are sacrificed on the altar of political correctness. I've heard this, of course, so many times that, you know, all kids need a dad or all kids need a mom. And I I think that all kinds of weird legal and relationship dynamics are are twisted in order to try to preserve that relationship and sometimes to the detriment of the child, because maybe that parent who is no longer the domiciliary parent, the one that the children live with, maybe they're a son of a gun. Maybe they're not a good influence. Maybe they're hurtful. They could be verbally abusive or physically abusive or even sexually abusive. And sometimes the courts don't have what they think is is complete proof of that. So they go on and put that child in the influence or under the sphere of influence of that hurtful parent. And, and then they just dismiss it as like, well, every child needs a father or every child needs a mother. And you're like, well, no, what kids need is a good father figure. They need a good mother figure. And it's important that we do what we can to provide that with our children, that we, again, not with any perfectionism or self-deprecation because of our, our weakness and our human frailties, but that we commit to, to doing what we can and being diligent in learning as we go to be better parents to our children and that we continue that path because they do need us. Now, there are a lot of families where there's not a father present. That's just the reality. We just heard this again the other day. 18 plus million kids in our society don't even have a stepfather or an adopted father, let alone their own biological father in their home. Over 18 million kids in this country. And it's not always the same if it's a stepfather and adopted father, although those can still be positive male figures in the child's life if the step-parent or adopted parent chooses to do that, which I I sincerely hope that they do, and I've seen many cases where that happens. Again, you don't have to be perfect, but you have to be present, and you have to try and invest in that child. So anyway, we've got this huge fatherless issue in America, huge, and the outcomes are lousy. I mean, I'm not going to get these stats right, but you you can look them up. That not having a father in the home is like the best predictor of all adolescent problems for children, which includes dropping out of school, you know, alcoholism, promiscuous sex, drug use, delinquency, getting in trouble with the law, an unwed pregnancy. I mean, all these things are vastly more likely to happen to our children without a, a strong father figure in the home. A positive, loving, when I say strong, I mean positive and loving. I don't, I don't mean a tyrant who's strong in, in nasty ways or one who gets angry all the time. I mean a positive, powerful, righteous man. Now, if you don't have that available for your children, pray to find one. And I don't mean necessarily in marriage. I mean, maybe there is a grandfather or maybe a surrogate grandfather that lives in your ward or neighborhood, that can be a positive male figure for your children. Maybe an uncle, maybe a ministering brother, a bishop, a young men's leader. There's nothing wrong with going and petitioning for that and saying, I need a good ministering brother that will come to our home and have a relationship with my kids. And and then asking, they need some of contact, is that possible? Can they be included occasionally in some of their, you know, the father's activities with his own children? This makes a big difference. It may not be as often as we would wish, but those contacts make a difference. To see a righteous man as a part of, of their lives, someone who cares about them and comes and visits the home or that they get to go visit, you know, this is important. So pray for that, and, and see where the Lord leads. Certainly, our Heavenly Father is a place we can also invite our children to develop a positive and powerful relationship as a father figure. It's certainly different than having a physical father presence or a male presence, but ultimately that is an answer, and the Savior Himself will minister to our children as well if we can help connect them to Him. Watch that part of the video. It's so tender. That little boy just soaks up the presence of a righteous man in his home. And men, be that righteous father, please. Not perfect. That's that's a long-term goal, and it will be an endowment in the resurrection if we qualify for it. So it's not about thinking that we have to be perfect or beating ourselves up for imperfection, but work at it get better at it. All of us can get better if we try. If we have a bad temper, we can change that. We can develop better self-control, read books, take classes, get counseling, do something. I actually was really, really thrilled about a father who not long ago initiated a visit with me and said, I need to have a better temper. I get angry too quickly and I hurt people. And I was so impressed with that. And we talked about how there are things that can be done to work on that to develop more patience a better handling of negative emotions so that we don't we don't become so injurious it's not just enough to say well they, they i know they love me or they know i love them that's not enough let's let's become better people marriage and family are, are some of the best refiner's fires on the planet let's be refined let's get better in these journeys so that we can provide better for our children they need righteous Men and women in their lives, and then you know, I think too. I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again that we need to, when there isn't a positive father presence in their lives, let's be careful. I, I know we don't want to talk ill of the other parent, so you know, big cautions here, not to try to turn children against the other parent. Certainly not that, but we do need to speak honestly with them. And this is an example my mother gave me so many years before that I'm so grateful for. She said. You know, sometimes with a Disneyland dad who only shows up for some events and then, you know, has a great time with a kid, but doesn't come the next time they're supposed to or doesn't show up for a special event or a program or game or whatever. And they're just here and there, you know, they're hit and miss and, and they don't consistently show up or keep their promises or their commitments to this child. Please don't tell that child, you know, don't worry. Your father loves you. Please don't say that to your child. Because that's not the kind of love we want them to learn. We don't have to badmouth the parent, but we can say that like, well, you know, that's not the healthiest way to show love, is it? Our Heavenly Father has told us how to love, has taught us how to love, and invites us to keep our promises where we love and to to show up and to be there and to, to be consistent We want our children to not accept that as, and and then designate it with the title of love or the descriptor of love because is that the kind of love they're going to show then when they grow up because that was love when they were little? Or is that the kind of love they're going to accept from a prospective partner someday and they're going to marry somebody who doesn't keep promises or doesn't show up all the time because, well, I know they really love me? Like, Let's use that as an opportunity to teach our kids what healthy love is. And not confuse the situation by applying that word loosely to things that aren't healthy love. And if we can help our children transfer, and not that they don't want that father's love or that mother's love who's absent, but to kind of help channel it and say, you know, who can we find that that can be a reliable source of help or support or interest for you? Again, a story from my mother. Her father was very abusive verbally, physically. He was a terrible guy, really. But when she was very young, it kind of hit her. I think she was probably still six, seven, maybe not even eight yet. And she had been, you know, kind of asking him to love her in a way. You know, she would ask for his attention. She would try to help him with things. He had chosen as his favorite her older sister, so he did take the older sister when he went to town or to the market or whatever, and would buy her little things, and she would have a fun time. And my mother didn't get a chance to go, which was certainly not fair. And she could see that her sister was having a good time. So she would, you know, kind of pester about that and say, when is my turn? Can't I go? Is, you know, it take me some time. So finally, her father took her on one of those little outings and was horrible to her the whole time. And If she wasn't watching carefully, he would walk away. And then she would be wondering, where did he go? Am I lost? And she would have to scramble around to find him. And he never got her anything to eat, no little snacks or little toys or gifts or anything. He just really was rude to her and ignored her most of the time. And it did something for my mother that, as painful as that situation was, was actually a pretty positive outcome. She gave up on her father. She gave up on him. It was like somehow the light clicked in her head and she said, he doesn't like me. He doesn't want to to treat me like he treats my sister. He doesn't want to treat me well. And she stopped asking for it. She stopped desiring it. And instead, she did reach for a heavenly father that loved her. And she had a good mother and she could see her mother's love. And that made a huge difference in her life. But she also then learned to reach for a heavenly father, a God who was fair and who did love her. And even though he wasn't right there tangibly in her home, that was the path that ultimately brought her joy and peace. And I'm so grateful that my mother shared that story because I think it's really important that, again, we kind of help our children be be cognizant of the fact that it's not any father that they want. It's a good father. It's a solid male figure or female figure in their lives that they can rely on that is healthy and good for us. I still talk to people sometimes who are, you know, well into their adult lives, even, you know, their fifties, sixties, and they're still hungering for the love of a parent who was not dependably available to them. And that's not good. That's not good. If that is our case, Let's accept the reality. There are other people that we need to focus on to fill those needs, people who are reliable, dependable. It's not about blood as much as it's about fulfilling that role in a healthy, positive way. It might be a grandfather, it might be an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother who who provides what we need, but let us stop barking up the wrong tree and hoping that this person will finally someday validate me by being there for me. Like, it's better to, to be reasonable and rational about that and say, let it go. Let it go. And seek the love of our Heavenly Father, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the good people that are sent into our lives to be angels and surrogates as the as Lord ordains. Last thing I just want to mention is that righteousness is the exception. That's kind of hard to, to get our heads around sometimes, because we desire righteousness and some of us who grew up in this post-World War II kind of glow. I mean, World War II was horrible and very costly, but then there was kind of a time of, of peace from, for decades. And, you know, there was kind of an appreciation of some solid terrestrial traditional values and so on. And so then we see the loss of those things and, and we can hardly believe that people would turn away from those good things. But really those periods of peace or prosperity are, are the exception in the history of the world. There's an author, Victor Davis Hanson, who's a military historian, really brilliant man. And I've read some of his things and listened to him, very informed and quite intellectual about things in in a good way. And he says this too. He says, peace is the exception in the history. And and he is a historian, a classicist. So he can go back to the times of Persia and Greece and Rome and whatever, and look at the history of of how nations struggle with nations and people against people. And he said, peace happens rarely in the history of the world and the history of mankind. It seems to happen only when the right people or the right country or the right power has sufficient power to back down more of the evil actors for a period of time. And it doesn't last forever. But it's kind of fascinating, but it's been helpful to me to think of that because I think we, again, we look at this time in the Old Testament, we think, why is it just such a terrible story? Well, because straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Righteousness is not the default. Righteousness is not the default. It's the exception. And I hope that's not discouraging. I hope it's motivating. But here, as we read the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see that. You're going to see that just once in a blue moon, there's there's a little righteousness here or a little righteousness there. And that's a great thing, because those people were choosing God in the midst of Babylon. But Babylon is kind of the default setting. And here we are again in a world that is turning away from God as fast as they can, faster than many of us would have imagined. But don't be deceived by those seemingly visible victories of evil. It does seem like Satan is having a heyday right now, and and he is, as prophesied. But it is just for a season to allow people to be tested, to see if at all hazards they will choose the Lord, to see if they can create Zion in the midst of Babylon, which we can. It has been done before, and it will be done again. I just want to make sure I'm a part of that, and I hope that you will be too. Satan and his followers and all who are deceived by him are setting themselves up for the biggest and most decisive defeat of all time and eternity. So if for a season, and it seems prolonged, if for a season, Satan seems to be triumphing, don't be deceived. Satan will never triumph. Satan is the biggest loser of all time, and those who follow him will have the same defeat but we can have the victory if our victory is in Jesus Christ. If we turn to the Lord with all our hearts, mights, minds, and strengths, and we build a Zion life, we choose glory every day of our lives in the midst of Babylon. We can do it, brothers and sisters. We can build Zion. We can choose glory. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.